Have a good echoey show. Okay, will do. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, and make with the highs. I missed the highs. Oh, right. I he... have no way to cut into the. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. You know what's awesome? What's awesome? We haven't talked at all about what we're going to talk about today, but I just want to say that our spec bisect is awesome. What's our spec Our spec bisect? You haven't used it? I don't know. Tell, tell me, <laughs> then I'll remember. So it came out in our spec 3.3, I think. But basically, if you have tests that are like failing only when run in a certain order, like that was an entire week's worth of effort before if you wanted to figure oh. out like what the hell is going on. And so now in our spec 3.3, they have like consistent ordering of specs when they're randomly ordered. And even when you like switch between branches that have different numbers of specs and whatever, they did a bunch of work to have consistent ordering of specs. And so now you can use our spec bisect and it will like do the same kind of thing that git bisect does. And if you aren't familiar with git bisect, you should check that out. But it'll do the same kind of thing there. We'll just like run all of the tests given the seed that you give it and verify that there's a failure. Then run all the tests without that failing test and say like is there you know what i mean and then just start bisecting going like half the tests and half of those tests and half of those tests and at the right. end you get a minimal reproduction command that's like run this specific test in this specific file and then after it run this specific test in this specific file and it gives you one rspec command to run and it's like here's the problem so like on that new client i was talking about last week i kept running into this for me, fairly common test failure. For other people, it wasn't happening that commonly. I don't know if like on their own machines, they weren't running the full test suite and they were just getting lucky on CI or something. But what was happening for me was I would get this failure and it was like had to do with audit trailing, which was the first I was like, oh God, here we go. And um, it was expecting, like the test expectation said it expected one audit trail for this merchant and it was getting two. I was like, all right, well, I looked at the test and I was like, I don't know. I don't see what's going on here. doesn't make any sense to me why this is failing. And then it's a gigantic test suite. So for me to try and like tra trace down what it is basically would have been impossible. I would have just had to live with it. <laughs> right. Because I've done that before where you try and chase it down when you have like a few hundred tests, but they have a few thousand tests. So like trying to chase down the ordering was going to be even, especially since I'm not all that familiar with like the decisions that were made in the past of the code base and like where the tests, you know, what, what tests do what and... Um, but with RSpec bisect, it boiled it down to the test that was failing and then running before it was this other test that enabled auditing. And I was like, oh, it never disables auditing. And then the, 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 the problem was like, you know, the, the previous test enabled auditing, never disabled it. And then the test that was failing created a couple records first, then enabled auditing. And it expected like one audit trail record to get created. But because auditing was already enabled at the beginning of the spec, some additional audits were getting created that it, you know, the test wasn't, it would never happen if you ran the test in isolation. But if you ran them in this order, that was the problem. But uh, that was the kind of thing that RSpec bisect, like <laughs> the, problem, the problem used to be a full day's worth of work at least. And now it's like, oh, I just run this command and like the test suite takes 12 minutes or something like that. So like, it was probably like a 30 minute operation to run, you know, the half the tests multiple times and things like that. But I just like started it, went to lunch, came back and it was like, here's the command you run. Uh, now That's go out. That's pretty at cool. It. Yeah. So big ups for our spec bisect. 
Yeah. So check that out if you haven't. If you have like if you have intermittent test failures that are particularly if they're repeatable with the same seed, like if you use right. the same seed and you keep getting the same failure, then our spec bisect is definitely the next next uh, thing to try. And it's a reason it's reason enough alone that if you're not on the latest R spec to get on the latest R spec. I mean I think now they're on to like three five or something like that. And I think this came either in three two or three three, something like that. We'll link to the announcement. There's actually a I think I think maybe it was from Myron Marston who posted about like all the stuff that was new in RSpec three whatever version this was I'm gonna keep saying it's three three, but other stuff that came in was like the consistent ordering allowed all this stuff it allowed RSpec bisect, and that's this I mean the mini test people are probably like going crazy because mini test has bisect has had bisect for a while I guess, but they also have like all, all, all three of them. <laughs> Come on now, um, but they also. Oh, I'm sorry, you three. I don't mean to. I don't mean to. Uh... It also has like it'll track the tests that were run and the failures in a text file, and then you can run like RSpec rerun only failures. So if you had if you had like if you ran your entire test suite and twenty things failed, you're in one of those situations where like one change made twenty things fail, which is a shitty situation to get into, but it happens all the time. Then you can just run this like RSpec rerun failed specs, or I forget exactly what the command is. It'll be in that post, and it'll only run the ones that failed. And you'd be like, okay, they all passed. Now I'm gonna go ahead and run the whole thing. Or I believe one of the commands that got added was just like it'll constantly rerun them, and then, or I think maybe it's that command that if they all pass, then the next thing it does is run all of them. Like it automatically knows the next thing you probably want to do is run all of the tests. Right. Um, so there's a whole bunch of stuff that got added that was really cool. But RSpec bisect definitely saved saved my ass yesterday and today. So. Big ups for our spec bisect. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a really cool. That's a really cool little tool. And like, if a lot of people also aren't familiar with Git bisect, so if there's like a problem, if like you have maybe you have one of those test suites where you don't have continuous integration or whatever, and somehow somewhere a breaking change got committed, or maybe you didn't have you didn't have a spec around something, and something that used to work is no longer working. So what you can do is put a spec around that and then use. Well, it's a little hard if you have to edit the file, but whatever. Anyway, our spec bi or Git bisect will let you run a command on every commit as it does a similar like bisecting between a known good state and a known bad state. I'm doing a terrible job of explaining this, but we have a blog post we can link to. <laughs> but uh, the the combination of Git bisect and our spec bisect basically saves a bunch of time when you're trying to figure out either what are the what's the ordering of operations that screws things up, or where along my Git history did this go wrong? Right, and well, and, and then. You know, it's called bisect, right, for those who aren't familiar with it, because it does a binary search, which means that it takes usually at most seven steps to find the, the commit that introduced, that introduced the failure for any reasonable size. Like, I use it all the time on Rails when uh, somebody opens a bug report uh, against 4.2, and it's fixed on master, and I want to find the commit that fixed the bug. Yeah, and like binary search is a fancy way for saying like the way I like to explain it is like you've probably done a binary search manually without ever realizing it. Like when you do something like uh, open up a file and comment out all the code and be like, okay, the test passed. And then you comment out half the code and you're like, the test still passed, so it must be in this half of the code, like that kind of thing. You're doing a manual binary search at that point, really. Yeah. Anyway, cool tools. They're awesome. Uh, what have you been doing this week? <laughs> Uh, so I am working on upgrading the Shopify code base to Rails 5. Nice. Which we're now at the place where it's look at the test failures, go find the line that's erroring, be angry that they're using a private API when there's a public API that trivially does what they want, change it to use the public API. What's an example? Um, they were uh, constructing some some SQL for like acquiring locks and uh, 
it was taking user input. So rather than using the sanitized SQL method, which is what gets called when you pass an array to where, it takes the array where the first element's the SQL, and that has all the question marks, and it takes everything that you want. It's going to quote all the values and, and stick them in where the question marks are. Rather than doing that, they were manually interpolating it and calling the method quote value, which was private API. And uh, I removed quote value in 5.0. Or actually, I changed it to an alias to uh, another method called sanitize, which only takes a single argument. Uh, but anyway, the point being, like, there was a public API that they could have just used from the get-go. Yep. <laughs> and then I got a little frustrated and needed a break, so I ran Joshua Clayton's unused tool against our code base. Yeah, I haven't tried that yet, but he like I've I've seen a few people try it and really like it. It took two hours to run against our code base and ate like all of my CPU during that time, but uh, it came out with fifteen hundred unused classes and or methods, and it, it seems to be pretty consistently like it's had. Um, when I went through the controllers, I just finished removing all the stuff in the controller code. About 15% of them were false positives, but all but one of the false positives were just somewhere that it was overriding a Rails method. Right. And so, I feel yeah. like that's more likely to be happening in controllers than in uh, helpers is the next uh, section. I'm fairly certain that 100% of what it's saying is unused in helpers is going to be actually unused. Right. Maybe not 100%, but a, a higher percentage than 85%. I was going to say I'd imagine it would also happen in models, but like the types of things that you would override, you're probably also calling yourself. Yeah. Whereas controllers, you might be like, you might override like, I don't know. There's various methods that you can possibly override to change the behavior of something. Right. Yeah, like one of them was, uh, it's called local, uh, local view paths or something like that, or local prefixes. Mm -hmm. It's used for like in views what, uh, when you do render bare word what folders to to look in but yeah so that was when i needed a break i just now go through this list and and remove dead code and then open up a pull request like look i removed a bunch of dead code i'm a wizard oh, i love i i mean we've had conversations before where i love my deleted line counts on projects so oh yeah i, I gotta get on this i gotta get i gotta get this thing running because <laughs> like right now on this project i'm kind of off in my own land and like doing this would probably be seen as like you're wasting your time because you're supposed to be working on this project but I'm sure there are lots of other things. Even just open source, like Josh has. If you go to the website, is unused.codes. Um, oh, I didn't even realize it had a website. Yeah, and so he has links there where he has like some pull requests he opened on open source projects, like uh, exorcism.io. He had a pull request that was plus zero lines minus fifteen hundred and one lines. <laughs> And like hound was plus zero minus one eighteen. Rubygems.org was plus one minus thirty nine. Like so, he's just like. Yeah deleting code all over the place. I have a blog post that I'm working on. I've, I've had a draft for a long time. It's just not in a state where I'm happy enough with it to publish, but where I talk about kind of like the broken windows of development. Yeah. Specifically Rails development. I guess like unused code is one of them that I talk about. Like it's just because if you let the unused code sit around, it distracts as people are trying to like refactor or, or figure out bugs or like they find a bug in a method and they're like, do I need this method at all? And you're like, oh, it gets called from over here. It gets called from over here. And then ultimately like three chains up the, up the stack. You're like, but the entry point to all of this never gets called. And you find, right. you find that out three hours later. Right. And you're like, oh, all those methods are dead code. And it just like allows you to like clear your mind of all that craft. Like, so that was one of the things. And, and then one of the other ones, I'm pretty sure like, the vast majority of applications won't won't be at this point, but I think 
I think Shopify might be at the point that we will see an actual noticeable improvement in boot time when I finish removing all of these. Because <laughs> so much of our boot time is literally just parsing and executing class definitions. And there are entire classes you no longer need? No, but even if it's, even if it's just removing 10, 20,000 lines of code. Right. Because hmm. I, got, I got a free thousand today, basically. That'd be an interesting test case to run, like like after you're done all of this, what would like a before and after of like just various metrics, um, yeah, would be cool to see. But yeah, I'm gonna try this out just to see. Um, I know he's been putting a lot of work into it lately, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But it uses um, the Silver Searcher AG under the yeah. under the hood, along with C tags. So any language, I think, I think basically any language that supports C tags would work. Is that? Yep, pretty much. And he says it's best leverage with Elixir and Ruby and other dynamic languages. So I was talking to him uh, like I was randomly tweeting him while I was going through it. So like, I'm going to run this against our against our uh, millions, millions of lines of code uh, Ruby app. Let's see how this goes. And one of the things I noticed was that it just spends so much time subshelling, like just just forking and or creating all those new shells and then immediately destroying them because each instance of ag runs for a fraction of a second. Mm -hmm. So one big way that it could get a huge performance win would be to um Unfortunately, ag doesn't expose. There's no like lib ag, mm -hmm. but um, either re-implementing the parts of ag that are needed in Haskell or like opening Rust. a pull request to <laughs> ag or in Rust <laughs> or opening a pull request to ag to, uh, hey, it'd be cool if there was a, if there was a, an interface to use this that didn't require subshelling. Hmm. Yeah. I think for most code bases, <laughs> you're not going to, it doesn't matter, right? Yeah, um, no, it's true. But yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, but I thought I thought it was cool. Yeah. So now you're going to be known as the guy who's running around deleting code everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. No. Once I once once I finish once we finish the Rails five upgrade, I'll I'll be going back to just doing Rails stuff, like proper Rails stuff. But the Rails five upgrade it has like, it's now getting scarily close enough to November, and this still isn't done. And we, and we need to, like, this is one of those things that just needs to be in a not half-finished state before the Black Friday code freeze. Mm -hmm. So starting this week, we threw, we started throwing a lot more resources at finishing the yak shave. By resources, you mean people? Yes. <laughs> okay. This is like, yeah, I just got, like, five more servers to run unused dot .codes on. <laughs> well, I mean, we do, we do run our CI now against... A Rails 5 gem file for all pull requests. And we have a bot now that will, if you edit the gem file and don't edit the, or if you edit gem file.lock, but you don't edit the Rails 5 gem file.lock, which basically just means running bundle uh, install with uh, environment variable set. Like we have a bot now that comes mm -hmm. and yells at you. So, like, those are resources. Will it, um, so like the tests are also going to run against Rails 5, but if I'm implementing stuff that adds new failures to Rails 5, that's just noise to me. Is there a way to tell, like, oh, my pull request added a brand new failure to Rails 5 in addition to the hundreds of other test failures or whatever whatever you've got? I don't think so. And probably the amount of time it would take to, like, get that part working would take more time than just fixing yeah, the failures. Yeah, I was trying to think, as I was saying it, I was like, how would you do... I guess what you would do is you'd have, a, have to have a central place to track, here's the status of Rails 5 on master. It has this many failures. And so every time you checked into master, that would somehow get updated. And then every pull request, you would check the number of failures. And if it were more, but you'd have to, at that point, you have to integrate with Travis or Circle or whatever you're doing to get like the raw number of failures back, which I don't know if they make possible, but they should. That seems interesting. 
and then if the number goes up you just like put a note it's like hey you have interesting new rails 5 failures even better would be like these specific tests are now failing under rails 5 and right. they, they were not before luckily for us we have our own ci infrastructure so we could totally make changes to that if mm. we needed to there you go all right we'll get on that because you need that uh <laughs> We do have this uh, during during our most recent hack days. One of the projects that they that people worked on was um, we have a tool for managing dev environments and doing dev things called dev. <laughs> um, and there's a dev test command. And basically during our hack days, they changed it so that dev test it keeps this graph of which files were hit um, by every test file. And so then when you make a change, it tries to, it looks at basically your Git law status and is like, okay, these are the tests which should be affected. And um, I remember not really getting into an argument, but getting into a discussion with them uh, during hack days. I'm like, you realize this is the literally the halting problem. Like you can't actually <laughs> have this work 100% of the time. And they're like, yeah, sure. But if it's like 90% correct, you know, we still run the full suite on CI uh, except I think it's a little bit less than 90 because like I'll see in CI uh, test is failing, right? And I'll go fix the file where it's broken. Mm-hmm. And I've not once yet had it run the correct test file as a result of that. <laughs> I changed application mailer today and it decided no tests were affected by it. <laughs> so I think, there, I think there's some holes that need to get plugged. Yeah. Oh, oh, you will. Okay. You will find this hilarious. So there was a, a change that was broken because uh, Action Mailer base no longer takes constructor arguments, which I know is a thing that any reasonable application should know or care about. I was tracking it down, and it was in a concern. And this concern was only ever used in one class. And the concern had an included block, which was doing alias method chain, and was doing alias method chain in order to override method missing. So this is like six <laughs> levels of metaprogramming. <laughs> to do more metaprogramming in application mailer. Why? Okay, hold on. Slow slow down. So there was a concern that was mixed into application mailer? Yeah. That had an included block. Yeah. That then overrode method missing. That used alias method chain. That used alias method chain to override method missing. Right. Don't forget that. Don't forget there, there's there's an additional level of metaprogramming. There. I don't think I've ever wanted to use alias method chain to override method missing. What what would it buy you? Uh, before module prepend was a thing, that was how you got super in in modules. But why would you want method missing super? Is method missing super different on? Oh, it must be on action, action um, mailer. It's yeah. not just object method missing. Now it's actually kind of funny. Is that now that I think about it. There's absolutely no reason it couldn't have just used super. Okay. <laughs> because action mailer base would be the super class. The only reason that you would need to use alias method chain was if you needed super to be the class that the module was included on and right. application mailer was not overriding method missing. So this could have just used super from the right. get-go. Okay. Phew. All right. <laughs> and like the reason why action mailer base uses method missing is because of those weird like you write instance methods for your mailers but the way you call them is through class methods that are magically Correct. just there. And that happens via method missing. Right. Because they don't know what you're going to name your mailers up front. Why? So, okay. So at some point, why didn't that ever change? Just too painful? Why didn't... Like, why? why what's the point of the magic there? Why don't we either write class methods for mailers or have mailers instantiate a mailer object and then call, like... Why do we call mailers 
with class methods that we don't define that are get that are magically defined for us. Well, I'm gonna guess that it's because David thought that having to do def self dot was annoying and having to do mailer dot new dot was was annoying. But there's nothing happening in those that you know of in those methods that's like I mean no, because well mailers are just controllers. Right. But yeah, I mean it's just to to make it so that you define class methods, we would have to make you define class methods and to make it so that there wasn't any magic, you would have to be doing mailer.new yourself. Yeah. I guess I'm not fine. saying that I agree. I'm not, I'm not saying I, I agree with that. If it were up to me, we just define class methods. Sure. But, um, you know. Yeah. Like I was just at the, at the start of this, I was going to like compare it with how at one point migrations went from class methods to instance methods. But that doesn't really compare because there was nobody, very few people were actually calling migration methods in their own code, right? It's just something Rails did. Right. And the need to call, the need to make it like self.up and self.down was just kind of like, why? Why are we, what's the point? Right. So different, never mind. <laughs> if we really wanted to, it could always be like mailer do. Mailer do, and then like you pass it a symbol for the mailer you want to send? Like the mailer name, and then and then we, we instance exec the block uh, on the class object. <laughs> right. So then they would be defined as class methods from the get-go. We could, we could do that. I'm not sure that's better. <laughs> I don't think it is. <laughs> I guess we'll live with the magic. The other, re the other reason is uh, just code reuse from instance methods that come from action controller, which are instance methods and not class methods. So you do actually want self in those methods to be an mm -hmm. instance and not class object. I see. Makes sense. Okay. I shipped a new version of diesel. I saw 0 0.7. 0 0.7. With associations? Associations. And then, um, I mean, that we've already, we've already talked about. Um, and they haven't changed much since the last time we spoke about them. But uh, I did go through this, this kick of, like, I wanted to give a better story for if you really, really have an aversion to procedural macros. I wanted it to be more reasonable. So, What's the example of, like, a procedural macro that you might have a with diesel that you might have a, a version to? For example, uh, we have a trait called queryable. Mm -hmm. And the definition of queryable is always pretty boilerplate -y. So we provide a procedural macro that automatically derives queryable for you. Okay. But because procedural macros are an unstable feature in Rust, you either have to be on nightly Rust or you have to use a thing called syntax, which is basically just a copy-paste of the Rust compiler that parses your, your source files, runs it through. It's, it's a copy-pasted Rust compiler that has procedural macros turned on and then spits out a string that goes to the real Rust compiler. <laughs> so, yeah. So um, I, I, there's a crate called custom derive, which is a non-procedural macro. Uh, where just you basically give it the struct definition, and then it'll call a normal macro with a conventional name for every derive that it sees, and then also spit out your struct definition. So you basically just copy, you put your struct definition inside this custom derive bang thing. Uh, you also don't have to use that, but our we designed it to be compatible with them. So now you could just do you, the macro would be called queryable. So you do queryable uh, bang, and then basically copy paste your entire struct definition into the body of the macro. And then I have a really, really shitty parser for Rust struct definitions in macro form that I use to deconstruct the struct definition and uh, spit out the derived thing. So now all of our procedural macros just call the non-procedural macro, but give better errors if like your options aren't formatted correctly or something. Mm -hmm. 
and can figure out certain options that I can't figure out in non-procedural macro. Like I cannot uh, infer a table name from a struct name because like you can't you can't write uh, like pluralize as a non-procedural macro. Okay. Anyway, yeah. So I did all I did all of that, and everything everything that doesn't do some form of I/O is now available as a non-procedural macro. All of the macros that do I/O definitely will never be non-procedural because I'm pretty sure you can't do I/O non-procedurally. Right. So like the infer schema where we load your database schema and call table for you, that that will always require procedural macros. The thing that embeds migrations in the final binary that will always require procedural macros. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's been I, I I've been interested in like so when you started talking about diesel and writing diesel back when it was YAQB, it mm-hmm. was like I want to write a query builder for Rust, right? I really like Rust. I like like we've had several episodes where we talked about what's cool about Rust and what's cool about yeah. building an ORM in Rust. And then a couple episodes ago you started talking about like, oh, libpq is a problem and PG isn't as great as I think it could be. And so, like, to see now, like, the work that you put in with Rust also potentially paying direct dividends to things that you're working on in Rails, I think is, like, a cool story to have watched evolved over, you know, I don't know, what, six months or something like that, eight months? Almost almost a year now. Almost a year now? (laughs) Yeah, Diesel 0.1 came out in November. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. Not really a question or anything. Just, like, it's been interesting to see. And then, like, based on, I don't know, our last episode or two episodes ago where we started talking about libpq, and you were like, oh, I'm going to use Rust. And, like, it was like, oh, I'm actually going to use the thing I'm writing for Diesel. (laughs) And then there will be bindings for Ruby, and then there will be a Rails adapter on top of that. And, like, it's like, oh, I see now. This is all, like, a perfect circle. Had you planned, like, that this would so directly impact Rails stuff as well, or potentially? I mean, it's not, obviously hasn't done so yet, but, like there's an idea there for it yeah i mean there was always little kernels of ways that i was hoping to use this in rails from the from the beginning if nothing else part of the reason to do this uh, that i wanted to do this was to explore what i might want the new rails query builder to look like mm-hmm. so you can all you could also expect probably a very similar ish api in rails six ish whenever we whenever we do the new query builder that was always the plan and then i had been thinking of providing rails bindings for these i guess i guess no, I never quite planned on a direct usage of diesel in Rails proper. Right. But yeah, it was definitely a nice a nice side effect. Yeah, hopefully that happens. Or even if it doesn't happen, it seems like it's been illuminating enough to be beneficial to Rails ultimately. <laughs> yeah. I think I will always have it be an optional maybe not always. I guess I'll have to decide when I'm comfortable having Rust as a dependency of Rails when used with CRuby. Because mm-hmm. uh, until I'm comfortable with that, I will always have to have the new adapter be an optional uh, add-on. Hmm. So it'd be the Postgres 2 adapter, which is fine, but that means that I'll also have to maintain the older Postgres adapter as well. So you can't ship just like a standalone binary? I can, but right to, to ship the binary, I have to, to compile it for every target that I want. And so, I, and so definitely, I will pre-compile it for both forms of Windows, Mac, uh, and Linux, 32-bit and 64-bit, x86, and then prob- maybe even uh, Linux ARM. ARM. Yeah. And that covers like pretty much everything. Right, but there's going to be if, something. <laughs> yeah. And so then it's like, if you want to use Postgres with CRuby, 
with rails and you're not on one of those targets, then you, you'll have to have rust on yours. I guess actually the more I talk about it, I'm like, okay, you know what? That's actually fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fantastic. But yeah, because that'll be the cool thing is like I, I will, it will just be I include this binary and it'll have fewer dependencies than for, for any all of the platforms that I just listed. It will have fewer dependencies than Postgres. Today. Right. You'll be able to gem install Rails. Well, you've always been able to do that. Gem install Postgres 2. <laughs> right. Gem whatever. install Postgres 2 is naming it's its own gem without having to have like right now it's like I can't find libpq. And you're like, well, right. oh, I have to have, lo I have, to have Postgres locally. So that I can install, I can install this gem because it's going to compile against this, and the same thing happens with MySQL. So, yeah, yeah. and SQLite, although SQLite's different because it's embedded anyway. Why can't they do the same pre-compiled binary? They can, they just don't. Okay. And they probably want to link against the libpq on the system. Uh, actually, I think it dynamically links for libpq. I think pg does it dynamically, not statically. Okay. So that would be why to, to decrease the binary size. Right. Okay. Cool. I have a um, quick soapbox I would like to stand on for a second. Okay. Um, the project I'm on has a comprehensive test suite, uh, or at least I don't know if it's comprehensive. It has a lot of tests. I don't know the code base well enough to say that it's comprehensive. Some of them are specs, and some of them are not specs. They use should a context test unit type stuff. And this is like, I don't know, it's like a recurring theme for me on projects I get put on where there's actually multiple test suites. And some of them are written in RSpec and some of them are written in Minitest or whatever the case may be. And I don't think I've ever been involved in a project where the decision was made like, oh, you know what? We were using framework X, test framework X, and now we're going to use test framework Y. And that transition ever was completed. Right? Like, like, right. So you end up in a situation where you now you have test helper and you have spec helper and you've got helpers that you need to share between the two. And then factory girl, you have to tell like, oh, no, go, go, go load the factories from over in test factories, not spec factories. And like, it's just it's it's fine, except that like it, it actually in this particular project, it works better than in any other project I've seen it happen with. But like one of the projects I was on a couple of years ago had this problem. And every time you ran rake, you got errors outputted from our spec ultimately because it didn't recognize some of the options that were input to like the test unit stuff that ran before it and, and like or if you had like plugins for mini test and plugins for our spec sometimes things would conflict and you had to make sure you're running them in the right order like they're just not really meant to <laughs> coexist like that right and everybody think like it happens so often and like i'm sympathetic to it because i know our spec and so when i come onto a project if it has mini test I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm out of my element here. How do I run a single test again? Like, what do I do? Like, and, and that's a little better because of my, my tooling has gotten better that it understands test unit and it understands mini test and it understands RSpec and it can do that for me. I don't have to think about it anymore. But for a long time, I'd have to Google like, how do I run a single file for test unit, mini test, whatever. I'm still confused what the difference is. I'm going to just use them interchangeably. Um, so <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let me get back to my, my screen here. Um, I would like to offer my services. Like if you are a, let's say you're an engineering manager and your team comes to you and they say, you know, we're this, these mini test tests, they aren't up to snuff anymore. What would really help us is if we switch to RSpec or if they say the, the opposite, right? Then what I want you to do instead is call me, right? And I will fly down there 
You can pay me some sum of money. I'll fly down to wherever you are, <laughs> and I will consult for you. And what I will say is, instead, give all of your developers an extra week of vacation and tell them they can't do it, right? <laughs> Be like, because ultimately, you will save time. And like for the people listening on the current project that I'm on, if you're listening to the show... It worked out better, like I said, in your case than I'd seen it work out in other cases. There's actually a pretty decent line of like what gets a test unit test and what gets an RSpec thing. And like there doesn't seem to be an effort to like we're going to convert everything over. So that's fine at least. And things run mostly without error, without any sort of that crosstalk that I was talking about before. But just like it's just one of those things where I sympathize with the desire to do it that people that developers have. But practically speaking there's just never a reason <laughs> like it's just like right. uh and it's only going to cost you so like if you are the engineering manager and your developers are telling you this just say no and just give them something else instead be like <laughs> how about no i'm going to give all five of you people an extra week of vacation that you can take right now if you want and you can come back <laughs> and we're, the company the company is still going to come out ahead versus rewriting our test suite anyway so that's the end of my soapbox <laughs> i like it because it is seriously like any almost all decently established projects I've been on have this situation where somebody decided along the way that they were going to switch the test suite. They're going to switch the test framework. And it's like, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. I don't know why. No, it's not. It's never <laughs> worth it. <laughs> okay. End of, end of uh, soapboxing. End of rant. Yes. But seriously, if you want to pay me to come down there and tell you that, then that's fine too. You can, <laughs> you can hit up the hire us form on thoughtbot.com. We'll, we'll take care of that. <laughs> all right. Anyway, that's it. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> Mic dropped. Okay. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 75. As always, rings and reviews on iTunes and Google Play are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. As always, thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. Woo!